Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. Welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz. Oh, welcome back. That had like that had like a like fading starlet like come back to a vibe to it. You didn't know that I was a fading starlet. Well, no, you're, a, you do. you're an emerging starlet. <laughs> My career is over. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Murder in the Land of Oz, your favorite Australian true crime podcast. Sometimes I hope it's your favorite. <laughs> then I why are you listening? Favorite. Hello. Um. We have a special episode today because it's Halloween year-round in our hearts, isn't it, Ellen? It is. It's in my heart and my brain. <laughs> um, and obviously, in tradition with last year, uh, we have our second annual spooky Murder in the Land of Oz episode. Woo! Woo! Rock the fuck on. Um, Jess is ob- um, feigning enthusiasm. No, I love spooky stuff. Well, I remember getting really freaked out last year. Oh, yeah, you did get freaked out. I get really <laughs> – I was going home alone and we were talking about the ba- – oh, God, the Banksia one in Darwin. That really fucked me up. Yeah. That's spooky. Um, look, a couple of things to cover before we get cracking. Um, we want to say a really big thank you to Jamie who has come on as a new Patreon. If you don't know, we have a Patreon. You can um, donate to us uh, by the month. We have different tiers of how much you can donate and there's different rewards. We do have Patreon-only content. Um, you can request cases on there as well for us to cover on the Patreon. I, I, like We're coming up on our like second to last season like going around Australia so if you do have any other cases that you'd like us to cover in Northern Territory and I think we're going down to Canberra as well for a couple of cases um, you can let us know on the Patreon um, so I want to say a big thank you to Jamie who um, has become a Patreon but also she sent us this amazing email um, two weeks ago and I only just saw it the other day sorry doll busy um, and Basically, she was writing to tell us about her um, honours thesis. So she said that she um, says, Dear Jess and Ellen, today I was supposed to be writing my honours thesis, but I was um, uninspired and procrastinating. So I listened to a couple of eps of your podcast. I just started listening a couple of days ago. I started from your very first episodes and I'm working up to the present. And today I listened to the Jill Ma episode. 
I'm not an emotional person, but those victim impact statements really got me. Listening to how affected you guys were really touched me too because I haven't listened to many podcasts where the hosts are so emotionally involved. But I love that you guys are because those victims were real people robbed of, their, robbed of life and they deserve to be remembered and respected. Anyway, in the last bit of the Jill Maher episode, you guys talked about how the system had failed so terribly and how I th- and how I think her husband had linked this issue to toxic masculinity. And all that got me thinking about accountability and the role of different state systems. And long story short, you guys have inspired part of my honours thesis. I've been working on a research project for, about the government's national plan to prevent violence against women and their children, but I've been really lost as to what aspect of the plan I wanted to focus on. Your episode on Jill Ma has given me the ideas to focus on how the system holds people accountable and how failing to do that is causing so many unnecessary crimes and deaths. I honestly can't wait to start writing properly now. I just feel like that episode gave me um, a gave me a real passion to write a good piece to show that the government just isn't doing enough and that the perpetrators are getting away. Uh, sorry, I feel like I'm rambling. You're not dull. You're very concise. I love it. Um, your episode on Jilma has inspired uh, my topic for my thesis and I'm incredibly grateful. I may include snippets from the Jilma case as a study within my thesis just to illustrate how important that issue is. I suddenly can't wait to start writing. I will try to do you guys proud. I love your podcast. You guys have gotten me through many long train journeys and um, oh, I'm getting really choked up and made me pay me much too. closer attention to how fucked up the world is. I can't wait to listen to the rest of the episode. Sincerely, Jamie. Jamie. <laughs> Jamie. This is truthfully the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. It's such an honor. That's so cool. It's, it's so, so cool. unbelievably touching and amazing. Thank you, Jamie. I cannot believe that we had any impact on anybody's lives at all, let alone something so huge. And yeah. that's like, a really like that's 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 your honors thesis. That's a fuck ton of work, Presh. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work, doll. But oh what an God, amazing hon. thing to be writing about. And it's so important. And yeah. no matter what, you're going to smash it. And we're proud of you. And we're going to cry now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, um, and yeah, uh, so thank you so much. So if you have um, any lovely things like that to say to us, you can send us an email, murderintheland.com. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm so emotional. I've read that email a couple of times just to be like, I know I'm going to cry when I – read it out so I should like read it a couple of times so I don't cry too much but anyway okay moving on um so obviously uh we're not on Tea Public anymore we're on Redbubble oh we're on both Tea Public and Redbubble for your murder on the land of Oz uh merch um also big shout out to our lovely friend of the podcast uh Lauren McKenna who shouted us out in her interview because she is uh, directing Dream Song in Melbourne. So if you're in down in Melbourne and you need something to see, they're at um, the St Kilda Alex Theatre. Dream Song's running till the 30th of November. So if you get want to get along and support some new Aussie theatre with um, amazing people, amazing creatives like Lauren McKenna and such, you should get along and see it. Okay. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I'm so teary. Okay. Uh, all right, you're holding Ellen. it together. It's all right. It's fine. Everything's. I'm great. ready to get spooky. Okay, I'm also just so ready to get spooky. Okay. Um, I'm sorry that this is late. It's not Halloween. Uh, there's nothing spooky about November, but there is because we live in a terrifying world, and every day is a new horror. <laughs> so, with that in mind, 
we are going to do basically exactly the same. I really wanted to do something different this year and I had been planning like all these things for so long and I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to research this. I'm going to do something amazing. And then I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just going to do the exact same thing as we did last year. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we are going to talk about ghost stories from every state in Australia. Also, this yes. episode is really long. I'm so sorry. I'm ready Honestly, to be spooked. When I was like researching this, I was like, I need to drop out of school and become a paranormal investigator. <laughs> I just think... You've missed your calling. I've missed my calling. I've got the stuff. Like, I could never actually be a paranormal investigator because I'm an anxious mess and I'm terrified of my own house and I sleep with the light on. But apart from all that, I could definitely be a paranormal investigator. Oh, so funny. Not at all. I'm being serious, <laughs> Jess. Support my dream. So we're going to start off in Queensland as usual, and this is a very exciting ghost, um, like all ghosts. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Nothing funny has happened yet. So this is the story of a the ghost of Captain Patrick Logan. Ooh. Yes. Um, so Captain Patrick Logan is the person who Logan – the town is named after. Oh, yeah! It's a great place if anyone's ever. If you haven't been, you should go. <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, it's the amazing. Center, the train station. They the did have a sizzler station. up until a little while ago. Oh no! They closed down the Logan Sizzler. What are people going to do? Do they still have a pizza? Maybe it's still open. I don't know. Maybe. Oh no! That's I at Browns it. Plains. Oh, Browns Plains. Also, also great. Also a stunning place. Yes. So, uh, Captain Patrick Logan was the commandant of the Moreton Bay Penal Settlement from 1826 to 1830. So Logan was born in Berwickshire, Scotland, and he was descended from a noble Scottish family who like, had some great military history tracing all the way back to the Crusades or something like that. Mm. And Logan kept up the family military tradition, joining the 57th regime as an ensign, and he served in a whole bunch of wars, including the Peninsula War, the War of 1812, and he served with Wellington and his Army of Occupation in France in 1815. He was promoted to captain in 1823. He married a lovely lady named Letitia Anne O'Byrne, and in 1824, he was sent off with the 57th regime to New South Wales, sailing into Sydney on the 22nd of April 1825. The next year, Governor Sir Thomas Brisbane, the person who Brisbane hey. is named after, <laughs> um appointed Logan to be the commander of the convict settlement at Moreton Bay. Now, the the Moreton Bay settlement was, like, was one of those ones where, like, you know, if you came to Botany Bay or Sydney or whatever and then you committed another crime, you got sent to Moreton Bay. It was, like, the double, double convicts double, settlement. Double convicts. The real bad boys got sent there. Um, but, yeah, there wasn't very many people there. Mm. Um, it was basically just a few convicts chilling in huts and a few, you know, soldiers to keep them all in line. So when Logan got there in 1826, he was like, okay, I am the commander of like nothing basically. And he set up uh, a whole bunch of like infrastructure projects, planted maize and like created farms and stuff like that and built all these buildings. Um, and by, by that, I mean, he didn't actually do any building. He just made all the convicts do all the work for him, obviously. Amen. Uh, Logan very much believed that convicts were there to be punished um, and working was a 
form of punishment, but also he could take it a little bit further. He loved to lash people. He just loved to do out the lashings. He was like, everybody, what have you done recently? Did you, did you trip over shoelace? That's a lashing. Yeah, he <laughs> loved a lash. He loved a lash so much that in 1827, the Attorney General was like, wow, Logan, you're doing so well developing this colony. I'm so proud of you. Um, good stuff. We're loving it. Please stop lashing all your convicts to death. Um, that's bad. And Logan was like, what, uh, what, do, you, what do you mean? What are you doing what, what do you mean? He was like, well, the convicts don't want to work. I have to motivate them to work somehow. And that somehow is through lashings. <laughs> and the attorney general was like, okay, hearing you, understanding you, listening to you, but also let's come up with maybe some alternative forms of punishment. So they decided to build cells to hold convicts in solitary confinement, which is not better, no. but not worse. <laughs> um, they also built Tower Mill, which is like that big old will. Do you know that big old windmill on Wickham Terrace? Yeah. That big old, that, they built that. Holy shit. Yeah, so Tower Mill was like a literal like treadmill, like as in convicts would like walk it to generate the power to like mill grain and stuff like that. Um, and that was also a form of punishment because it was like real hard to do. Logan was very much hated by the convicts of Morton Bay Settlement, um, so much so that he was called the Tyrant of Brisbane Town and a folk song called Morton Bay was written about him. This song would be would go on to be quoted by none other than Ned Motherfucking Kelly in the Drillery Letter. <laughs> Everything comes back to Ned Kelly. Everything comes back to Ned Everything Kelly. Everything comes back to Ned Kelly. There was a reference to Ned Kelly in the last Ghosts episode. There is I literally have like a wall which is just pictures of Ned Kelly and like string like connecting to everything. <laughs> Everything comes back to Ned Kelly. So the context of the song Morton Bay, it's like, it's one of those, it's a classic Australian folk song. It's like, oh, I came upon a convict and he told me his tale. But the lines, the lines related to Logan go, I've been a prisoner at Port Macquarie, Norfolk Island and Emu Plains, at Castle Hill and Kirstoon Gabby, at all those settlements I've worked in chains. But of all those places of condemnation in each penal station of New South Wales, to Morton Bay I've found no equal, excessive tyranny there each day prevails. For three long years, I was beastly treated, heavy irons on my leg I wore. My back from flogging, it was lacerated and often painted with crimson gore. And many a lad from downright starvation lies mouldering humbly beneath the clay where Captain Logan has us mangled on his triangles at Morton Bay. Which I think illustrates Big it wolf. all. Big wolf. Big wolf. So many convicts died under... Logan's regime so about six a month died the entire time he was in charge and apparently over 30 tried to run away so one such person who died as a result of Logan's lashings was a convict named Stimson so not much is known about him because he was just you know a convict he committed some crime when he arrived in New South Wales to eventually get sent on to Morton Bay he absconded three times from the penal settlement and each time he was recaptured and punished receiving between 300 and 500 lashings how did he have any skin left on his back I don't think he did (laughs) he didn't survive the third round of lashings and he died of just like so many wounds to his body so, as well as uh, building towns and inflicting corporal punishment, Captain Logan really enjoyed exploration. He was the person that kind of mapped and charted a lot of 
Brisbane, in the greater Brisbane area. Um, he dis- he discovered the Logan River soon after arriving in Brisbane in 1826, discovered in quotation marks because, of course, every, like Indigenous people have been living there for however many tens of thousands been, of years. Yeah, so Indigenous people have been here for 65,000 years and a white guy like, comes oh, and he points just- out a thing. It's a thing. He goes, oh, there's river. I'm going to call it the Logan River after myself. Um, he actually, he didn't actually name it after himself. He first called it the Darling River and then Governor Darling was like, oh, no, it's fine. You have it. We're going to call it the Logan River. <laughs> you take river. this one. And he was like, oh, me? Little old me? You want to you wanna name it after me? I, 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 fine, I, if you insist. Um, so he did a lot of exploring around like the Ipswich, which is what is now the Ipswich area. He climbed Mount Barney, which at th- 1,356 meters was the highest altitude ever attained by a white man in Australia at that point in time, which Jesus, is like okay. not that much of a win, but good for him. Good um, for you, doll. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So his whole, Logan's whole thing is that he wanted to map the entire course of the Brisbane River. So a lot of his exploring was done with that aim in mind. So he would usually travel with a servant and a bunch of convicts to help him out, um, but he would also often travel alone in wild, wild, rough kind of country. So after one such solo expedition, Logan was headed home on a rough and rugged track two miles outside of Brisbane. It was getting dark. On the track ahead of him, Logan saw a man wearing yellow convict garb. He was he was presumably like, oh my god, I'm about to like catch a runaway convict. He was like, okay, I'm ready to ride on in on my horse and catch this guy and send him back to the settlement and lash him up. Lash him up good. Lash him up. But to Logan's surprise, the convict strode towards Logan on his horse and grabbed the stirrup. Um, Logan raised his hunting crop and brought it down over the convict's head, but the crop passed right through his head and hit the horse. Uh. So he like he like raised his crop, passed it down, was like it was going to hit the convict's head, but it just sailed right through him and hit the horse. So the horse started running and the convict was still holding on to the stirrup. So this horse is like going crazy, running like wild. Logan's freaking out, but the convict is just there still holding on to the stirrup and he's looking dead into Logan's eyes, like as if nothing is happening. He's just holding on and watching him. And Logan's like, what the fuck? My horse is freaking out. This guy is freaking me out. I'm going to die. What's going on? So he kept on trying to hit the convict over the head with the stirrup but it was just not making contact it was just sailing right through keep on hitting the horse it's a whole time it's an extravaganza um suddenly logan realized that they had made it to the banks of the brisbane river and the whale boat was waiting to ferry him across to the other side back to the settlement so logan was like again trying to hit the convict guy who was still holding onto the stirrup unmoving and then he watched in horror as the apparition of the convict just disappeared in front of his eyes so he was like, okay. I'm going crazy. I'm going crazy. That's fine. Then he got on the boat and he told the crew that he recognized this convict and that it was Stimson who had died a month earlier at Logan's hand. And the spot where Logan saw him standing on the track was the very spot from which he was captured from when he ran away the final time. Right. And that spot, are you ready for this, Jess Ryan? That spot. I'm ready is where QPAC is. Jesus! Uh-huh. <laughs> That's my favourite part of any of this story. So, although he was spooked from his ghost encounter, the 
horror of seeing a ghost of a man that he had murdered didn't really stop Logan's desire for blood and punishment. So his reign of terror continued, with Governor Darling eventually limiting the amount of lashes a person could receive in one day to a hundred. Logan's tenure as commandant of Morton Bay was up in 1830, but in what would end up being not a great idea, Logan decided that he wanted to undertake one final expedition. On October of 1830, nice and spookily, Logan set out on what would be his final journey, with taking with him his personal servant and five convicts. So early into the journey at Pine Mountain, the explorers ran into a spot of bother. So apparently a group of around 200 indigenous people were standing on the hill, right where Logan and his crew would need to pass by. The indigenous tribe apparently threw rocks at the group, but not spears or anything like that. They just were warning them away a little bit. Yeah. So Logan's servant, Collison, fired a shot over the heads of the indigenous tribe to scare them off. This worked, and the Indigenous tribe ran off, and the group continued on, but the Indigenous people came back, and they told Logan that he needed to go back across the river, to which Logan refused. So apparently, the Indigenous tribe followed Logan's group from afar for the rest of the day before eventually leaving them be. So a few days later, they're into their exploration. Logan's like, okay, guys, you hold the fort. I'm going to go off and do some things, and that he would be back by nightfall. So the crew waited around the campfire and waited and waited and waited. Night fell and they went to sleep. Then the next day they went off in search of Logan who had never returned, but they couldn't find any trace of him. So they headed back to the settlement to report that the captain had gone missing. So another captain dispatched several search parties to the area who were ordered to scour the bush with the utmost minuteness in order to find Logan, but it took them five days to find any trace of him. It had appeared that Logan had spent the night in a gunya as evidenced by a fire. They found like a fire with like roasted chestnuts by this little, you know, this little campsite and um, evidence that his horse had been tethered to the tree there, but they, they couldn't work out why Logan would have gone there. A short distance away, a member of the short search party found Logan's saddle hanging from the branch of a tree, the stirrups of which had been cut away as if with a hatchet. The search party also found that there were some marks in the dirt that looked as though they had been made by the saddle, like it had been dragged along the ground. So they followed the marks, and there they found Captain Logan's waistcoat, which was stained with blood, and all of his accoutrements scattered around it, all broken and destroyed. They continued following the marks from the saddle, and they found Captain Logan's horse dead. A short way away, a short way away from the horse's body, they found the body of Captain Logan, horribly mangled and covered with leaves and dirt. Logan's body was brought back to the settlement and examined by the surgeon, Mr. Cowper, who determined that the injuries to Logan's body had been made by native weapons. He had been beaten in the head with a nulla nulla and pierced in the side by a spear. His feet, which had been left exposed, had been eaten by dingoes. So not too many people in the penal settlement were too sad to hear that the tyrant of Morton Bay had been killed, apart from probably Logan's wife and children. Um, But people loved talking about the theories of why he had been killed so people were like people did mostly accept the story that he was murdered by the indigenous tribe because obviously the indigenous people didn't love the white man which is fair enough and which is fair enough and because the indigenous tribe have had warned logan to stay away earlier that day people like well he didn't heed their warning and he got what was coming to him but they also thought that it was possible that Logan could have come across a group of escaped convicts while he was camping out and that they had taken justice into their own hands and gotten revenge on the person who had caused them so much pain. 
And there was another theory that the group that he was with, so he's traveling with his servant and five convicts, and people believed that he didn't actually go off into the night at all. The group that he was with just decided to murder him, which again, fair enough. Everybody hated him. So this this kind of theory like answers a few questions. It answered the question of why he would go off and spend the night at an Aboriginal camp while the rest of the group was just like like he never gave any reason for why he wanted to leave so they were they're like it makes it makes more sense for him to have not left and then everybody should just have been murdered yeah but another story which came out after well another story which came out basically straight away when he was still missing is that um a group of prisoners who were working on the riverbank on the day that he was murdered which was the 18th of october they saw Logan and his horse standing across the river, waving, like as if he wanted to be wanted to have the ferry brought across to them. So they launched the boat and sailed out over to the other side. And when they got there, they realized that he wasn't there. And he was standing on the very spot where QPAC is, from where Logan had seen the ghost of Stimson a couple of years prior. So people have continued to see the ghost of Captain Logan all around the place, um, including uh, mostly in Ipswich, which were, where he spent a lot of his time. Um, but people, people essentially believed that his he was like trapped where he had committed so many horrible crimes and he was not able to leave and everything like that, which I think is fantastic poetic justice. <laughs> For a person who had killed so many people. And I just love that QPAC, the Queensland Performing Arts Centre, is the site of these ghostly I mean, there has been some atrocities committed at QPAC since as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. The ghosts of QPAC are going to live on. I don't know on. if you that saw that fame sure. tour a couple of years ago because that was shit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um... There's also been sightings of ghosts at Tower Mill. So as I said, Tower Mill was used as like a place to punish convicts, but it was also used um, to hang people. Um, so two Indigenous men named uh, Mullen and Dingerville were hanged at the top of Tower Mill as punishment for the murder of a surveyor um, named uh, Granville Stapleton. And people have reported seeing candlelight glowing from the window and um, images of figures swinging. Which I think is. Can cool. I just say, Captain Logan looked like a fucking asshole. Yeah, he has that face, doesn't he? He's that fucking face. Uh huh. He has that real like. I I'm going to storm into your territory it. and claim it for the queen. So that is the story of Captain Logan. Whether or not you believe his ghost was actually seen, but the, the people that saw him on the 18th of October, the day he died, were like, it was definitely Captain Logan. We definitely saw him like they like stopped at what they were doing got on the boat sailed across the river and then we're like oh he is not that ain't a short ride yeah. either like that's it's not a short ride especially in like 1820 whatever 1831 i think wow i've never heard that story before neither had i i didn't even know who logan was named after i just assumed they named it that because it rhymed with bogan <laughs> all righty next ghost let's go next ghost this one is in New South Wales. Yep. So we're taking a nice scenic drive over the Mount Victoria Past in the beautiful Blue Mountains, which is some of the most beautiful country in Australia. 
So Mount Victoria Pass, which has been called an outstanding and rare reference site for colonial road engineering standards and practices, which is just like a winning review. Um, I wish somebody would say that about our show. Um, (laughs) Was constructed by over 400 convicts and was officially opened in 1832 by Governor Burke. Charles Darwin, literally Charles Darwin, called the road worthy of any line of road in England, which is just wild. Charles Darwin. Thanks, Charles Darwin. Thanks, Charles Darwin. Thank you for taking time out of writing on the origin of species to comment on the Mount Victoria Pass. The people of Australia are grateful. We're going to name a town after you one day. So the pass Oh, my God. Is that who Darwin? Oh, of course. Yes, stop it. That's a joke. No, because I thought it was like a settler called Darwin. Like I, th- I thought Darwin was a bit later. No, this isn't like, like 1832. Yeah, this is in 1832. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah, cool. That was fine. really dumb. Anyway, moving That's on. That's fine. We all, you know, every day you just is a learning journey. You know what I mean? Like you never know what information is going to come at you. It's very early. We don't normally record this early. <laughs> no, that's very true. It's so, not that early. It's not that early. It's it's one o'clock. <laughs> it's quarter to 12 here in Brisbane town with our daylight savings, the spawn of Satan. Okay, well, here in Hobart town, it's one o'clock and we've got ghosts to talk about. So the pass is utilised by all sorts of folks on their horses and carriages as they travelled along the Great Western Highway from Sydney to Bathurst. Travellers would still tell stories, though, about their horses getting antsy and restless as they approached a section of the pass called the Second Bridge. They would see a figure, an apparition dressed in all black with long dark hair, arms held out as if in supplication. Her eyes glowed bright like a tiger and some people even said that she appeared to be headless. She would only Ooh. appear for a moment, just long enough to scare travellers absolutely shitless and give them something to panic about as they continued over the dark, long, mountain wind- winding mountain road. So the story of the woman in black, as she was known, was very well known. People would, like, people would like tell people like when they were going on a journey, like, make sure you get out early so you don't see the woman in black while you're driving down the road. In 1891, um, incredibly famous Australian bush poet Henry Lawson wrote a poem called The Ghost at the Second Bridge. And the poem tells the story essentially that like a bunch of blokes go to a bar and they're like getting drunk and then they're going to leave. And one guy's like, don't leave. You're going to see the ghost at Second Bridge. And the other one, they're like, no, we're not. We don't believe in ghosts. Ha ha ha. And then they go and drive over the bridge and they see the ghost and it scares them essentially. But better written than that and like famous. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in the poem, Lawson mentions some of the tragic things, other tragic things that had happened on the pass, including the tale of a convict turned bush ranger named Govett, who, finding himself cornered while on the run from the law, chose to jump off a 300-meter cliff, thus giving the name to the part of the Blue Mountains known as Govett's Leap. And he also told the story of a teamster who killed his wife for, the line in the poem is, a teamster who killed his wife for those old days were rough. So rough, I suppose, that all you could do was kill your wife. Um, but this throwaway, this throwaway line in the poem actually references the real story of the woman in black, who was not actually a woman, but a teenage girl named Caroline Collett. So Caroline Collett was born Caroline James in 1827. And she was one of six children, and her life was not that great. Um, her father ran an illegal alcohol establishment, which supplied grog to people on the sly and her mother Mary was an alcoholic who committed suicide when Caroline was just eight years old. There were suspicions that there was more to Mary's suicide than met the eye and her husband Caroline's father William was arrested and sentenced to death for her murder 
And then, like, at the last minute, the conviction was overturned and William was free. Caroline and her siblings had been left to fend for themselves for some time at their property in Bathurst while their father was in prison. They had had no food and no real way to, like, access food or, like, make a living for themselves or anything like that. And they were unable to care for Caroline's baby brother, who had been born not long after his mother's death, and he too died. When William returned from prison... Caroline and her youngest sister, who was also named Mary, were sent to work as servants for the Collets, who were a local family who owned the Hartley Inn. At this time, they met a man named John Walsh, who was a free con- freed convict and all-around creep who began a sexual relationship with both of the girls, who at this point in time were aged 10 and 12. A year later, Mary, who again was now aged 11, married John Walsh, and Caroline, who was 13, married the Collett's son, William. William was 25. It was not a happy marriage, and after a short time, Caroline moved in with her sister and John Walsh. Um, In early 1842, there was hope that Caroline and William would get back together. So Walsh, Caroline, and William met for a drink in an inn, and they were kind of like, okay, maybe we'll marry again. Maybe we'll get back together. Caroline's like, I'm 16, but that's fine, whatever. Um... But on the way, after they were at the inn, they were all traveling home together and a fight broke out between William and Walsh. Um, Walsh picked up a rock and went to strike William. And Caroline begged for William to run away, saying, run, he has a stone and he will murder you. William did run away, leaving Caroline to John Walsh. The next morning at 6am, the postman found the battered body of Caroline Collett beside the road on Victoria Pass. Her face and head was covered in blood and bruises, and there was a wound to her temple that had penetrated through to the brain. Next to her body lay a bloodstained rock. John Walsh was immediately suspected of her murder, and he was arrested, but at the trial he blamed the innkeeper at the tavern they had been drinking at, um, and not William Collett for some reason, even though he was right there. Um, But the jury didn't buy his story, and John Walsh was sentenced to death by hanging, which occurred in May of 1842. But unfortunately for Caroline, she apparently continues to haunt the second bridge. People still talking talk about they talk about seeing her at the bridge and they also talk about seeing her at the inn. So spooky. Super spooky. What I loved about that story is that like in the time period, like so recently after her death, people were being like, Don't go down that road because this girl was murdered there and you can see her ghost. And like I think it's a really cool, it's a really, it's a really cool, like, you know, a lot of times with ghost stories and stuff like that, you're like, ooh, people report seeing a dude at this prison, like, and it's not necessarily, like, somebody real, but, like, people were like, don't go there, Caroline, the ghost of Caroline Collard is there. They knew exactly, they knew the story, and it morphed from this, like, horrible tale of this teenage girl who was murdered into, like, this real, like, ghost story and this real warning to people. Do people – so, like, when you're driving on the part, like, on the second bridge, mm-hmm. you – like, there's, like, a feel of unease, uneasiness or something. Yes, yes, that's what happened initially. So, like, it happened, you know, people talked about seeing the ghost, and then eventually that story kind of, like – the knowledge of the story went away, but people would still report feeling uneasy or that their horses would get spooked and stuff like that on the bridge. And then people would be like, Ooh. oh, your horses are getting spooked because of the woman in black. And people would be like, the woman in black? And they'd be like, yeah, it's the story about this girl who was murdered. Spooky. Also, spooky. the woman, like, woman in black. Have you seen that movie? The one with Daniel Radcliffe? 
Yes, I have. I didn't think it was that scary. I got so spooked. I believe you. Alrighty, next ghost. Okay. Victoria. Victoria. Woohoo. So, Filled with many horrors. Many, many horrors. Many, many horrors. Um, so every wannabe paranormal investigator, such as myself, knows that the two most haunted places are prisons and mental asylums. Therefore, a prison for the criminally insane is doubly haunted. That's going to be double haunted. <laughs> double haunted. So J Ward, as it is now known, began its life as the Ararat County Jail, located in, of course, Ararat, Victoria. Ararat has so many asylums. <laughs> it has so many asylums. I don't understand how one location can have so many asylums. It's also the home of um, Aradale Mental Hospital, which has been described as one of the most haunted locations in Australia, but we're not talking about that because I need some stuff for next year. So we're going to talk about J Ward instead. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ararat County Jail was built in 1859, and it was modeled after um, Pentonville Prison, which I think I talked about <gasps> last ghost episode as well. Pentonville. The one in... England? England, it's, yeah. It's the circular. It's that the Panopticon Prison. So, the idea mm. that you just have one central guard, and all the prisoners feel like they're being watched at the same time. So, yes, the design was the classic guard station in the middle. All the wings radiated around it, so that guards... So that the prisoners, even if the guard was never necessarily watching them at one time. It felt like they it were. It felt like they were. Exactly. So Ararat Jail officially opened in 1861 with a respectable 21 prisoners incarcerated inside. It only operated as a proper jail for 25 years or so, but in that time it saw three executions and it was managed by four different governors, one of whom died inside the building while working, working there and whose restless spirit definitely does not still remain within its walls. The prison was constructed due to the boom of population in Victoria as a result of the gold rush, but when the gold ran out, so did the supply of prisoners, so the building was handed over to the Ararat Lunatic Asylum, which was suffering from overcrowding, there being no shortage of lunatics after the gold rush. I didn't get my gold. I didn't get my gold, and now I'm crazy. And now I'm crazy. <laughs> Me, every day. Um, so... Ararat County Jail then became J Ward, the wing of the asylum dedicated to housing the criminally insane. And boy howdy, there were a lot of criminally insane people wandering around at the time. So being sent to J Ward meant that patients, as they were called, could expect somewhat nicer accommodations than the Melbourne Jail, but it also meant that they were outside the bounds of the parole system, meaning they could be they were held at the governor's pleasure, meaning that they would only be released when the governor and the medical staff were satisfied that they were no longer crazy. So that means that some people there, some people were there for a long ass time. So Charles Fossard was one such case. Fossard was a vagrant who had shot and killed an elderly man named William Ford after Ford had turned Fossard away from his home. Fossard was found two weeks later wearing Ford's boots. He was convicted of the murder and a judge declared Fossard to be insane. He began his incarceration in 1903 at the age of 21 and would remain in J-Ward until 1974. I beg your pardon? When he died at the age of 92, having spent a total of 71 years in prison. Can you imagine? Okay. You begin in 1903. Cars didn't exist. And then you were still there in 1974 when we'd been to the moon. Someone had been to the moon. And people were using mobile phones. Like, and you're just inside that cell the entire time. I just cannot imagine. That dude must have been crazier than a cut fucking snake. (laughs) 
So another long-serving prisoner was Bill Wallace. So in 1926, Bill Wallace was hanging out in a cafe in Melbourne, which is very hipster of him. (laughs) Another man entered the cafe, sat next to Wallace, and lit up a cigarette. This being 1926, smoking inside was pretty common, but Bill Wallace was not a fan of smoking and asked the gent if he could put it out. The man refused. Wallace then took the very reasonable step of waiting outside the cafe for the man to leave and then shot him, killing him instantly. All right. (laughs) It's not funny, but it's a little bit funny. Okay. A police officer that was nearby the cafe heard the shot and rushed over to arrest Wallace. Wallace gave no details about the crime and refused to answer any questions from detectives. Wallace didn't have a trial, being declared unfit to plead, and two doctors found him to be insane, although I'm not sure how they did that because he didn't answer any of their questions either. He literally just sat there and was just like, no, (laughs) not saying anything. They're like, we think you're crazy. Go to J Ward. And he was like, okay. You know that, you know that episode of The Simpsons <laughs> when they're like, "Hey, Johnny Tightlips, where'd they shoot you?" He's like, "I ain't saying nothing. <laughs> Go suck a lemon." That's what this guy was like. Um, so Wallace was sent to J Ward, and he was held at the governor's pleasure, meaning that he would never be released until the doctor said he was cured, and the doctors were never going to say that he was cured because he never spoke to any of the doctors. So as much can one as much as one can enjoy life in a prison for the criminally insane, Wallace had a pretty good time while he was incarcerated. He very much acted like a gentleman. He liked to be addressed as Mr. Wallace and he always wore a suit. But he was still violent. He always wore, a sh- he always wore shoes. He always wore a suit. Oh, I thought you said he always wore shoes. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a gentleman does. <laughs> always wearing shoes. Mr. Just Wallace. love that. Um, yes. No, he always wore a suit, so that they would allow him. He got a new suit every year, I believe, and the staff would like help him, like measure him and everything like that. And it was sent off and made for him. Um, but it was like a, you know, it was like a prison suit. Um, but even though he was a perfect gentleman, he was still violent and quick to anger. And it was said that when he was provoked, he was capable of kicking somebody's head off. Um, so Ooh. for. Bill Wallace's 100th birthday, yep, his 100th birthday, the J Ward staff gave him a chess set as chess was one of his favorite pastimes. So this kind of like made a, got a little bit of attention. Um, there was like an article in the newspaper about it, I think, and the public started a petition to release Wallace from prison because they were like, oh, he's 100 years old. He should probably, he should probably not be in prison anymore. I feel like he can't really do that much damage. Um, So they started a petition and the government was like, sure, we'll release him. And Wallace was like, Wallace refused to leave saying, don't be fucking silly. I live here. (laughs) (laughs) He just loved life. He was just so happy with his chest set and his little suit in J Ward. So he was eventually moved to the geriatric unit at Ararat Lunatic Asylum at the tender age of 107 years old. He lived to 107. He died a month before his 108th birthday. Some people think that Bill Wallace loved life in Jay Ward so much that he never left. Ooh, what a segue. I know. Writing. So a Melbourne-based paranormal... Don't be fucking silly. Don't be I fucking live. silly. I live here. A hundred years old in prison. They're like, they're like, we'll let you out, Bill. It's fine. You've done your time. He says, don't be fucking silly. I live here. 
my response to anything now when somebody if anybody tries to cross me to be fucking silly i live here so a Melbourne-based paranormal investigator named Sarah Chimicaro conducted a little experiment. So she has gone to all the asylums and stuff like that. I'll link her website in the show notes. Um, so she she did like a – she's like a proper paranormal investigator. Like she's got this stuff. You know what I mean? She's got the – she's got the she's gear. She's got the infrared she's got cameras. The tech. Um, so knowing that Wallace was a fan of chess, she bought a special chess board into the main cell block area where – Wallace had lived his literal entire oh life. Oh, did one of the piece moves? Yes. <laughs> Let me tell the story. <laughs> so she, it had like a sensor on it that would light up. So she, she addressed Wallace respectfully as Mr. Wallace, knowing that he had liked to be considered a gentleman. And she told the story like of his life in the jail and everything like that. And of, you know, the things that he had done and she would like ask the board if things were correct and the board would like light up in response to her question. So she she was like, yeah, she would tell stories and like be like, oh, and then Bill Wallace stabbed this guy with a fork because he asked for the last slice of bread. Isn't that right, Bill? And the chess set would light up. So whether or not you consider that to be conclusive evidence of paranormal activity is up to you. I'm convinced. Um but many people have reported sightings and feeling very negative feelings when touring the jail. One other ghost uh, is that of George Fidimont, the very stupidly named fourth governor of the jail. So Governor Fidimont <laughs> died in 1886, suffering a massive heart attack on the way down the stairs to the underground kitchen. People have reported hearing the sounds of boots walking down the stairs while in the kitchen, but of course nobody ever makes it into the room. Um, the governor's bathroom, which is also underground for whatever fucking reason, um, was also said to be the location of six murders, and people have reported feeling demonic presences in the room. Okay. Possibly the spookiest location, however, is the burial site of the three men who were executed within the walls. All three were convicted of murder, Andrew Villa being executed in, 18, in August of 1870 for the murder of Amos Cheel. Robert Burns, who is not the poet, was executed for the murder of Michael Quinlivan in 1883, and Henry Morgan, who was not the pirate, was executed for the murder of Margaret Nolan in 1884. Apparently, they had plans to commit, well, not commit, to hold more executions at the jail, but the hangman was really bad at his job. So they were like, no, we think we're just going to let, we're going to leave Melbourne Jail do the hangings, and we're just not going to hang any more people here. So the What do you mean he was bad at his job? They just said that he was bad at his job. Like he was What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. I mean to be like a hangman, like you need to do like measurements and everything needs to be really precise to make sure that the person dies. And I think that maybe they had some problems and they were like, Okay, we're just we're just not gonna trust this hangman anymore. <laughs> so they stopped doing hangings there. Um the bodies of the three murderers who were executed were buried on site in unconsecrated ground in unmarked graves, which of course means that unable to be sent to either heaven or hell, the spirits of the three murderers continue to wander the grounds. Um, you can do ghost tours here and you can see all of these places and you can go into the haunted governor's bathroom if you want, which is underground. I wish I had more time in Melbourne. I know. I would. I really want to go. I want to chat to Bill. I've got some questions for him. I don't think he'd respond because be like, that wasn't Bill, his vibe. I get it. You live here. 
but you know we get it we get it um so the the prison was in use um for a while uh up until 1991 and a lot of really interesting people who aren't dead and who aren't ghosts stayed in there including chopper reed whoa yeah and chopper reed was like chopper reed who was like for people who don't know like a melbourne gangland like legend i suppose and like a real cooked chook was like the worst place i've ever been on earth is jay ward like he 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 was like and this is in like the 19 like late 80s like 1990s he was like it is the most miserable horrific place ever and some people spent a hundred years there anyway it's closed now do a ghost tour next next date next ghost South Australia. Tasmania. Tasmania. <laughs> Your least favorite state in Australia. No, it's not. It's not. Sure. It's a, it's a goddamn lie. So this ghost is interesting um, in that it has been publicized in newspapers many times. Like, this is a ghost with, like, some PR to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so this is the story of another asylum called Willow Court. Willow Court has gone through a lot of names. It has been called the New Norfolk Insane Asylum, then the Hospital for the Insane, then the Mental Diseases Hospital, which is not catchy at all, then Lachlan Park Hospital, and now it is the Royal Derwent Hospital. But most people just call it Willow Court. Right. So it was was originally built in 1827 to house the mentally ill and otherwise invalid convicts and also alcoholics for some reason. Um, Then it was expanded to a lunatic asylum more generally. Um, And then, of course, because this is Tasmania, it was used to house a bunch of prisoners. And then it ended up being a general mental health facility before closing in 2000. And I want to say up top, reading about this, um, there's a lot of discussion and controversy and stuff like that, talking about the ghosts of Willow Court because people did live in there so recently and people like remember, like they're people who were in Willow Court who are still alive and there are people who had family members who were mistreated there and a lot of people are like talking about like the ghosts of Willow Court trivializes the very real like pain and suffering that people experienced which is definitely true and I want to acknowledge that ghost talk is fun but like people did actually suffer and everything like that um anyway ghosts so many there have been many reports of people thinking that Willow Court was haunted, even when it was still in operation. So reports of ghostly activity go back as far as 1944, with the Mercury reporting that one of the wards in the women's building was called the ghost room by nurses, and they wouldn't enter in there unless it was absolutely necessary due to the uncanny, uncanny feeling that they experienced there. The article from 1944 was mostly focused on the poor conditions inside the hospital, which was known as Lachlan Park at the time. The hospital had been in continuous use for 118 years at that point, and many of the wards hadn't been renovated at all in that time. The women's building didn't have any sewage systems, and lavatory pans had to be carried through the halls, like through kitchens and like dining rooms and stuff like that to be disposed of, so it wasn't super sanitary. Um, women's were, women were sleeping in beds that had been given to the hospital from Port Arthur 80 years prior. They were made of iron, hard, and they didn't have any like springs or mattresses or anything like that. Oh, okay. So, a lot of other articles appeared in the Mercury of the Years focusing on the conditions inside um, Willow Court, but no further discussion of ghosts was found until 1991, when several articles appeared both in the Mercury and the Canberra Times, randomly, um, reporting on the story of a nurse at the Royal Derwent being attacked by a ghost. 
So this nurse said that he had been grabbed by an apparition and physically thrown into a doorway on three separate occasions while on duty in Ward 5 of the hospital. And one of these incidents was witnessed and corroborated by another nurse. Other employees reported hearing strange music with no source and saw doors and windows open and close of their own accord. In total, six separate employees reported seeing an apparition in the ward. Counselors were brought in to in order to help the traumatized staff, although none of the 25 patients living in the ward appeared to show any impact from paranormal activity. So the Willow Court Project, which is a paranormal research group, has collected several stories from ex-employees of the Royal Derwent that describe their experiences with the Ward 5 ghost. They reported that the ghost looked like a blue heat haze or like an aura around a body. One night at about 2am, one staff member who was named Trevor got a call from another nurse saying that there was something wrong with another staff member. Trevor could hear banging, crashing and screaming over the phone, so he rushed over, radioing medical services on the way. When he got there, he saw the staff member lying on the ground, pale white, shaking and thrashing around with his hands over his throat. He was yelling, get it out of me, get it out of me, get it out of me. Medical services arrived and treated the staff member. Afterwards, Trevor discussed the incident with one of the doctors who said that he did not believe the staff member was faking the seizure. Um, Other staff members would, you know, they didn't necessarily see anything as dramatic as that, which they believed to be like the ghost possessing the staff member, obviously. Um, But they would, they would like smell things, smell things cooking, even when they weren't near kitchens or when there was nobody making anything. Um, And they would see floating orbs of light. The staff were all convinced that something was happening in the hospital, but that the management just wanted them to ignore it and go on with their jobs. The frightened staff ended up demanding that an exorcism be performed by the Catholic Church, which seemed to help. And the Australian skeptics offered a cool 20 grand to anybody who could prove the existence of the ghost under laboratory conditions, which I am assuming nobody ever claimed. So, who is the Ward 5 ghost? No one really knows. A medium who visited the site said that there were actually two spirits there, one peaceful spirit and one angry spirit, who was the Ward 5 ghost doing all the attacking. Um, Ward 5 definitely seems to be the most paranormally active location in the hospital, and there is a reason for this. So, in the late 1970s, there was apparently one nurse who was really into seances and the paranormal. Another staff member, who was a skeptic, talked this nurse into holding a seance one night around midnight with a group of other staff members. Not a good idea. Great idea. What better way to prove that ghosts are real than conducting a seance? You're in a fucking insane asylum at midnight conducting a seance. Are you wish? Do you want death? I guess. Do you have a death wish? Yes, they do. Um, So, of course, this happened on Ward 5. Bullshit. The seance was interrupted, however, by the night supervisor who was like, what the fuck are you guys doing? (laughs) So they stopped the seance. Big mood. But they didn't get to close the seance off properly, meaning whatever spirit or entity that they they had contacted was loose in the ward. The portal is fucking open. The portal was fucking open. So the person, the man who was the skeptic in this seance said that while he never saw anything he would feel the hairs on the back of his neck stand up when he walked into ward five so in february of 2011 11 years after the hospital closed down the derwent city council came to the decision that there should be a paranormal investigation of willow court holy shit some people in the community were angered by this decision as they said that it demonized the people who were incarcerated there or who had had family incarcerated there But the paranormal investigators were all over it like a rash. 
So the Australian Paranormal Investigation Unit, or APIU, were given permission to hold an investigation of the asylum and surrounding buildings. And they have recorded electronic voice phenomena, seen countless apparitions, held ghost tours, and even procured the only known photo of the Ward 5 ghost. So the photo was allegedly taken in July of 1991. It was taken around 9.30pm in a pitch black hallway of Ward 5. The photographer took 20 pictures in total, and when he went to get them developed, the person at the like photo developing counter was like, you can have them for free, there's nothing on here, nothing, nothing got printed. But the photographer flicked through all the photos and saw one that was not blank. He made seven photo- copies of the photo, which were distributed to seven people who had been involved in the hauntings, all of whom which have apparently destroyed this image and it is the only one left remaining. The photographer said that he never shows the photo to anyone and he believes that the negative energy from the ghost has impacted his life, making him a more negative person. Jess, are you ready for my prop? Do you want to see the ghost? Yes. (laughs) Can you see it? Yes, that's... (laughs) Are you convinced? No. Do you believe in the paranormal now? I can't believe in the paranormal because otherwise I'll never sleep again. (laughs) The photo of the ghost, um, I'll link it in the show notes. Actually, it is already linked in the show notes. I thought he said he was never going to show it to anyone ever. How'd you get it? Because No, he gave it to the Australian Paranormal Institute of Australian Paranormal. What is it? APIU. He gave it to them. They procured it. It took him years. You have to read the blog post. He said he was waiting 10 years to find this photo and he was finally given one. And this is it. It's literally like a line. It's a, line. It's a white line. It does kind of look like a head and shoulder. Kind of. Kind of. There's also like a... If you squint. There's like a little doorway as well in the background. I don't think the doorway is the ghost though. I think it's the line. But... <laughs> Look, it's it's possibly not conclusive evidence of the paranormal, but it's pretty spooky. Um, I don't want to go to an abandoned mental hospital. It's not abandoned. There are ghosts there. <laughs> so uh, the Australian Paranormal Investigation Unit, sorry for pronouncing your name wrong before, guys, um, are releasing a documentary about Willow Court, which is due for release in late 2019. So keep your eyes out for more high quality photos of the ward five ghost so do they do guided tours through willow court yeah holy shit this place looks terrifying it looks like every other abandoned mental asylum i've ever seen in my life to be honest with you seen one seen them all but i would go it's only like 40 minutes away from me Alrighty, you ready for the next ghost melbourne no No. south australia south australia (laughs) geography is getting worse (laughs) so this this is an interesting one. Um, South Australia is interesting in uh, paranormal investigation terms because it wasn't settled by convicts, so there's not as much like pain and suffering and stuff to like draw on. But there are still plenty of ghosts, as we know from friend of the podcast, Alan Tiller, host of, damn it, I can't remember the name of the show, Ghost Investigation Australia, I think. Um, very famous person responded to my email once doesn't know I exist but I treasure that email we'll claim that I'll claim it I'll claim it forever Um, Alan considers South Australia to be the most haunted state in Australia and he has done the research to prove it one of the most haunted places in South Australia is the Adelaide Arcade 
So, located on Rundle Street in the Adelaide CBD, the arcade was open just in time for Christmas in December of 1885. It was a stately cosmopolitan shopping experience for those free settlers who wanted to splash a bit of cash. It had two floors, 50 stores, and electric lights. It was the first place to have electric lights in Adelaide. And while it opened to great fanfare, many of the city's poor residents were not happy with the money spent on such a flashy display. Only two years after the arcade opened, the first of several grisly deaths occurred. Francis Clooney worked as essentially like a fancy kind of security guard at the arcade. He was in his late 50s and he was a distinguished ex-serviceman of the British Army. He wore his military uniform while working and he was well liked by the people who shopped in the arcade. Much like modern shopping centre security guards, Francis spent most of his time chasing away rowdy teens. On the evening of June 21st... Them teens. Them teens. They're hanging out at late night. Them rowdy teens. Standing in front of the 1885 version of Hungry Jacks, you know, wearing their 1885 Nikes. Wearing them knickerbockers. <laughs> knickerbockers. Saying swell, you know. Yeah. Them Chewing teens. gum. Them teens. So on the evening of June 21st, 1887, uh, Francis had chased down a larrikin who had broken a picture frame at the photography shop and he demanded that he paid for the damage he had caused. At about eighteen, uh, at about 8.05pm, Francis spoke to Mr. Harcourt, who was the arcade engineer, um, and Harcourt said that he had to go to, to the exhibition down the road for about 15 minutes and that he would be back to help Francis close the place down for the night and asked Francis to go and shut off the gas turbine that worked the generator that powered the electric lights. Um, A man named Mr. Home was in the arcade when the lights suddenly went out. He went into the engine room to investigate, and he saw a mangled body wedged in the engine, which he identified as being that of Francis Clooney, due to his distinctive red military uniform. Alarmed, Home ran out of the room and informed Mr. Sim, the machinist, who went into the engine room to also see the body of Francis Clooney. Francis's body was like fucked up from being pulled into the engine. There were fragments of his skull scattered all around the floor. His body was mangled and his face was completely unrecognizable. So there are competing theories as to what had happened to Francis. The newspaper reported that he slipped on the hardwood floor and fell into the engine, but other people thought that the larrikin who had broken the photo frame had followed Francis into the engine room and pushed him into the engine when his back was turned. While Francis died horribly, it seems that he has not given up his work at the arcade. He has been cited many times, and it is said that he makes his presence known whenever youths are acting loud and aggressive around the arcade. Don't you go acting rowdy. Or the ghost of Francis Francis Clooney will will come get you. In his red coat uniform, will tell you to stop breaking photo frames. Um, He's also apparently shown himself on several occasions to electricians and other workers who have come on the site, one of whom reported seeing an apparition take hold of his hammer, and it spooked the guy so much that he refused to return to work at the arcade. Francis's ghost has even been caught on camera, and you can view the footage on YouTube, which I have linked in the show notes. (laughs) Um, Francis has also been cited with a woman who some speculate is the ghost of Florence Horton. So Florence had been walking down Rundle Street with two of her friends on the evening of Saturday, February 27th, 1904. The mall was busy and crowds of people were looking into the window displays of the Adelaide Arcade. Two weeks prior, Florence had separated from her husband, Thomas, to whom she'd been married for only a year. Florence had written a letter that would later be published in the LA Advertiser, saying that if anything ever happened to her, it would be because of Thomas. In the letter, she said that Thomas had threatened her... This is so sad 
warning, this is really sad. Um, she said that Thomas had threatened her life many times, that he accused her of adultery and of being a prostitute almost constantly throughout their marriage, that he beat her, smashed glass bottles at night to keep her awake, and refused to let her see a doctor or have any man, like a milkman or a sewing machine salesman, come into the house when he wasn't there. All the while, he drank and had affairs. In January of 1904, they had a massive argument about the father of Florence's child that she had had out of wedlock. Thomas bashed her, threatening to punch her head in. Florence screamed for help, but nobody came. The, you have to read the letter. It's, it's in the thing. It's so long. I couldn't possibly describe everything. But this argument went on for such a long time, and he kept on threatening to kill her and saying that he could kill her and that he would be able to get away with it and all of this stuff. Mm. Um, but she, she argued back and she vowed that she would leave him that night, which she did. So catching up to that night that she's walking with her friends in front of the mall, um, she didn't know that Thomas was following along behind her as she walked down the street with her friends. He came up behind her and shot her three times in the back. She staggered from the road onto the pavement before collapsing and she was lifted into, she was lifted up and taken into the tobacco shop in the arcade where she passed away. Thomas made a run for it, but he was eventually caught and brought to the judge in March of 1904. He pled guilty. He pled not guilty for the murder, but was found guilty by the jury. He then attempted an insanity defense, but he was examined by Dr. William Lennox Cleland, who was the father of Dr. John Cleland, who was the pathologist in the Summerton Man case and in the Martha Rendell case. I know. Like I said last time, there was only one doctor in Australia at the time, and his name was Cleland. Um, So Dr. William Lennox Cleland was in charge of the Parkside Lunatic Asylum, and he determined that Thomas Horton was not insane and that he should be sentenced to death by hanging, which he ultimately was. Horton continued to tell anyone who would listen, including the prison chaplain, that Florence was adulterous, that she was a prostitute, and that he was justified in her murder. But the Mm-mm. autopsy con- conducted after Florence's death determined that she had suffered from a venereal disease in her past that would have made sexual intercourse impossible. Oh. I know, that broke my heart. So people see Florence mostly in Shop 50 of the Arcade, which was the to- tobacco shop, but is now a Coco Black, which is apparently a chocolate shop. Um, Coco Black is delicious. You need to go and have the... Um Old mate used to take me there all the time. And I remember going there for the first time and he was like, let's share a dessert. And I was like, share? <laughs> and it was this chocolate thing. And I mean, thank God, shared it because Malta Bene. Malta Bene. So good. We'll go and share a dessert with the ghost of Florence Horton because I think she needs mm. a pal. She fucking deserves she it. She deserves it. Um, there are lots more ghosts at the Adelaide Arcade, but I'm not going to talk about them because, again, I need content for next year. <laughs> So we're going to move on to Western Australia. Um, I, while we've while you've been talking, I've looked at that uh, video of the ghost of Francis Clooney. That shit is fucking spooky. It's spooky, right? It's real. It's real. It's just like a blue light that comes out of nowhere. But it looks like a person. It looks like a ghost. Uh, it, I think it's good evidence. I can't really see a figure. Like I can just see this light that's really freaking me out. I, but yeah. I think it's a ghost. Ghosts are real, confirmed. So now we're back off to Western Australia. Hey, the big bit. The big bit. The big one. The left part. Um, where 
in another prison. Prison's a, a good source of paranormal activity, as we've discussed. Yep. Um, so the Roundhouse Prison in Fremantle is delightfully situated along the coast of Arthur Head in Fremantle, Western Australia. It was built in 1830 and opened in 1831, making it the oldest building still standing in Western Australia. Which is pretty impressive because Western Australia was only established as a white person colony in 1829, so having a prison up and running in two years is pretty impressive. So the prison was another example of the classic panopticon design, and as you can probably infer from the name Roundhouse, the prison was circular with eight cells and a residence for the jailer all opening onto a central courtyard. The prison was used to house both colonial and indigenous prisoners, but as more convict ships arrived in WA throughout the 19th century, a bigger prison was needed to be constructed. So the roundhouse was used as a prison until 1886 when Fremantle Prison was completed. It was then used as a police watch house until 1900, and then it became a residence for the chief constable. Then it was empty for a while, and then people were like, we should preserve this piece of history. And everybody was like, yes, we should. And then the Second World War happened, so it was abandoned again. And then in the 60s, it was run by the Western Australian Historical Society, and now it's a museum. Obviously, as a prison and the oldest building in Western Australia, the Roundhouse saw its fair share of history. There is only one... There's, I've written, there is only one definitive ghost on site, but, you know, definitive is... Definitive ghost. <laughs> <laughs> definitive ghost. <laughs> there's only one, like, there's only one ghost. Maybe there's more. I'm not sure. There's only one definitive ghost. Can I ghost. just throw back to that quote from last year? It's ghost research. It's not exactly peer-reviewed, which I still think is one of the funniest things you've ever said yeah. in mind. I was literally just about to say that that phrase comes back to haunt me quite often. And then I was like, ha ha, haunt. Anyway, definitive ghost. This actually isn't funny. This is sad. Um, so John Gavin was convicted of some unknown offence in England when he was a juvenile. He was remanded at a reformatory near Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. And John Gavin was one of 1,500 other juveniles from the reformatory who were known as Parkhurst Apprentices, who were sentenced to transportation to Australia with the arrangement that they would be pardoned when they arrived in Australia if they were apprenticed to local employers and if they did not return to England for the duration of their sentence. John was only 14 years old when he was transported to WA, travelling on board the Shepherd, arriving in October of 1843. He was to be um, he was to be an apprentice to farm labourer John Pollard, who owned a large, prosperous farm near Pinjara. John, his wife Jane, and their three sons lived very separate lives to Gavin, who was very much seen as the help. But Gavin seemed content enough with his life on the farm up until the twenty first of February, eighteen forty four. The account of what happened on this day comes almost entirely from Jane Pollard. John woke early and went about his chores like normal. Mr. Pollard was away for a few days on business, and John Gavin, Mrs. Pollard, and the three children had lunch on that day at around 12.30pm. John and the rest of the boy chatted. John got on particularly well with 18-year-old George Pollard, and everything seemed normal. There was no animosity or anything like that between anybody. Mrs. Pollard came down with a headache and went to her room to rest. She could hear her son George singing in the next room. She listened to him singing for a while until it stopped suddenly. Jane thought that it was strange, but it wasn't necessarily suspicious. A little while later, she got up and went into the kitchen, where she saw John Gavin standing with his face and lips a ghostly white. She asked John what he was doing, and he hurriedly responded that he was taking some hay from George's room into the barn. Jane Pollard prepared 
began preparing the dinner and she decided to check on George and find out why he had stopped singing so suddenly. She walked towards George's bedroom and she saw John Gavin walking out of it, wringing his hands. She went into the bedroom and saw that George was lying on his bed with his back to the door and a coat draped over his head. She went to shake George awake, but he didn't move. She pulled the coat from his head and saw that it was covered in blood. Thinking that maybe he had just had a nosebleed, she tried to move his head around and, quote, her hand sunk into the back of his skull. I'm so sorry. Her hand sunk into the back of his skull. Fifi is appalled. Fifi is appalled. Fifi is running away. She is trying (laughs) to escape the horrors, but she can't. When she pulled her hand away, it was drenched in blood. In the corner of the room, she noticed a rusty axe covered in blood. She began yelling, and her younger son, Michael, ran into the room. She told him that John had murdered George, and that Michael needed to ride to her sister's farm four miles away to get help. Her other son, Thomas, was sent into town to get Mr. Singleton, the constable. She left the bedroom in search of John Gavin and saw him outside, walking through the yard from the river. His shirt was wet and stained a pink colour, as though he had tried to wash away the blood. Jess, can you stop looking so happy? (laughs) Jess is cuddling Fifi and I'm telling her a horrible story of murder and she looks so happy. Sorry. Be sad, please. This is serious business. Ghosts are serious. When you told me that her hand sunk into the back of his head, I needed to touch the cat. Mm -hmm. I understand. (laughs) It's really fucked up. It is fucked up. It's pretty gross. Um... So he's working, his shirt's wet, pink, as though he'd tried to wash away blood. Mrs. Pollard grabbed John, took the bloody shirt from him, tied up his hands and made him wait in the room with George's body for the constable to arrive. John was then arrested and charged with willful murder. Jesus. The surgeon determined that George Pollard has sustained nine, five nine-inch long gashes to the back of his head and the tip of his left ear, and three, f- ah. and three of the fingers on his left hand had been severed. Ugh. John Gavin didn't... That's... Ugh. That's what? That's a lot... <laughs> no, I keep going. John Gavin denied that he had committed the murder and said that he had fallen into the river while getting a drink. No one in the family could provide a possible motive for the murder, with even Mrs. Pollard saying there was no hatred or jealousy between John Gavin and the rest of the children. John Gavin was tried in April 1844 for the murder of George Pollard. He continued to deny his guilt, but the jury deliberated for only an hour before finding him guilty, and he was sentenced to hang from the neck until dead. He was only 15 years old. While awaiting his hanging at the roundhouse, he apparently wrote a letter confessing to the crime. The letter stated that he wanted to kill Jane Pollard first, and that he realised that George Pollard, being bigger and stronger than him, might overpower him if he did something to his mother, so he decided to kill him first. He said that he went to the river not to wash his clothes or to have a drink, but to drown himself, but he didn't have the courage. There was no real motive given for the crime, but George did state that the Pollard family never loved him. He was hanged on April 6, 1844, in the front steps of the roundhouse. He was so small that weights had to be tied to his legs so there would be sufficient weight for the ropes. Oh, no. He was hung at 8am that morning, and afterwards a death mask was made and his body was buried in unconsecrated grounds in the sand hills near the jail. So John Gavin is most often seen now as a ghost roaming around the steps of the roundhouse right in front of where he was hanged. He's also been seen and heard in the shipwrecks gallery, which is right near the roundhouse and nearby to where Gavin's unknown grave is supposed to be. People have reported hearing things banging around in the gallery and seeing things out of the corner of their eyes. 
and people have speculated that the reason that John Gavin remains on Earth is because he was actually innocent of the murder. Up until two days before his death, he steadfastly denied committing the crime. He never gave any motive for the crime and said himself that he couldn't come up with a reason for why he would have done it. And the only person who witnessed anything to do with the murder was Jane Pollard. So the theory is basically is that Jane was lying in her room. I mean, the questions that come about the case is that Jane was lying in her room, which was right next to George's, and she could hear him singing until it suddenly stopped. So how could she hear him stop singing but not hear the sound of an axe being hit into the back of his head five times. Um, The fingertips on George's left hand were severed, as I said, so he had defensive wounds, meaning that he was awake when he was attacked. Yeah. And he probably would have made noise. Um, It doesn't seem to me... It doesn't seem to me that it's likely that George, who was a large, fit 18-year-old boy, would have had any problem holding off a 15-year-old who was so small that he had to be weighted down at his own hanging. One of the, if you research this case, um, people say that John was most likely innocent because they had discovered that Jane was suffering from postpartum depression at the time. But I looked into it and she didn't have any, she hadn't had any children recently prior to the crime. So her younger son, Michael, was born in 1837, which was, and the crime happened in 1844. So that's like seven years beforehand. I don't know how long postpartum depression lasts for, but I don't know if it's seven years and I don't know if... You can still kind of be like, sorry, I was just I was just depressed and crazy seven years after the baby was born. Um, but I did find out that a daughter of hers, who was also called Jane, had died only a couple of months before George was murdered in January of 1844. And the cause of death was listed as burn injuries, but I, I don't know anything more about what happened there. So this case is very tragic but it's also very interesting historic historically because it was the first murder to occur in western australia since it was founded as a colony and um john gavin was also the youngest person to ever be hanged in western australia 15 15 now he's a ghost so that one was kind of sad and depressing that's sad it is sad i don't know like when i was reading it initially i was like jane obviously did it and then i did more research about her and i was like maybe she didn't do it and it's probably not great of us to accuse her of murdering somebody or murdering her own son and then blaming it on somebody else when we don't have the facts of the case but i just don't understand why he would have done it it just doesn't make sense and i think that if i was a 15 year old whether or not i had done it or had not done it i could see myself coming back to haunt confessing no i could see myself becoming a ghost all right i'd be like wait a second it's just like he probably he i say he didn't do it Mm. um and like it's the night before he maybe he thinks like oh if i just say that i did it maybe then it'll or if the priest was like you have to confess otherwise you're not going to go to heaven yeah something like that he's like fuck i don't want that oh yeah it's horrible our final ghost is the best one the final count. Oh, it, it always is. It always is. Northern, Northern Territory. Territory is great. Holy shit. So. That Banksia one like fucked me up. This is, this is not a scary one. This isn't scary. It's just like a fucking solid yarn and a half. It is amazing. Okay. I'm so ready. This is the story of the Humpty Doo poltergeist. Okay. Do you. So I work for a flower delivery company. Do you know how many fucking orders I get? And Humpty Doo's not on our like 
standard delivery service, the amount of fucking people that want flowers and Humpty Doo. It's because they're terrorized. It's because there are poltergeists and fucking Banksy women all over the damn shop. Okay, tell me, tell me about this, please. Alrighty, this is this is such a good story. <laughs> so basically, this poltergeist pestered this household for like months. So the poltergeist set up shop at 90 McMinn's Drive, which was a four-bedroom house set on five acres just south of Humpty Two in the Northern Territory in January of 1998. In the house lived Jill Somerville, her partner Dave Clark, and their mate Murph, um, who had lived in the house since August 97. And shortly after that, Andrew and Christy Agus moved in with their 11-month-old daughter Jasmine. It was after Andrew and Kirsty moved in that everything in the house went nutso. So it started off small. In late January, the monsoon season was in full swing. When sitting outside on their veranda one evening, the group noticed that somebody was throwing small pebbles at them. Thinking that somebody had snuck onto the property and was playing a prank, they yelled out for the perpetrator to stop. The stones continued, and it had started to rain, so the group decided to move inside. And so did the pebbles. In front of their eyes, pebbles started to... Huh? And so did the pebbles. Uh-huh. <laughs> In front of their eyes, pebbles started to fall from the ceiling, landing all over the floor and furniture. It was, as I said, it was raining really badly outside, but the stones in the house were warm and dry. Being rational adults, the house... What the fuck? (laughs) This is so good. Being rational adults, the housemates didn't immediately jump to supernatural conclusions, and they went to inspect the ceiling. But as soon as they took the manhole cover off, more dry stones started raining down at them. What the fuck? Afterwards, various objects were seen were sent hurtling around the room. Knives, batteries, broken glass, and other objects. Over the next few days, the poltergeist smashed a CD player to the ground, smashed glass doors and windows, and threw ashtrays. A few days after that, the whole house was kept awake while the poltergeist pulled appliances from the walls, scattered pebbles all over the ground, and scratched on the walls. <sighs> Terrified, the housemates decided it was time to fight the supernatural with the supernatural and called in the priests. First, Father Stephen of St. Mary's Cathedral examined the house. He noticed a knife sitting on top of the microwave. When he turned his back, one of the housemates yelled, Father! And he turned to see the knife hurtling towards him. It stopped just short of his chest and fell to the ground. Father Stephen was not spooked, having dealt with demons and poltergeist cases before. He believed that a restless spirit was occupying the house, drawn to it because one of the members was unconsciously calling it there. He used what was described as an ancient Catholic ritual uh, to try and bind the poltergeist, but it didn't appear to work. Father Tom, the Humpty Doo Parish priest, tried next. He visited the house four times. He observed items being thrown around the house that seemed to have no cause. A pistol cartridge fell at his feet, and items would crash inside rooms that no one was standing inside. He blessed the place and chucked about a little bit of holy water for good measure. And... <laughs> I read quite a few different accounts of this, and every single one of them used the word apeshit to describe what happened next. The poltergeist went apeshit. (laughs) Everything went berserk, and shit was flying around the room like that one scene in Matilda when she, like, learns how to, like, harness her powers. And she's like that, but it's less endearing because it's a fucking poltergeist. but less wholesome. Um, The the priest left a crucifix and a Bible with the housemates, as if that was going to do anything. And they spent the night listening to the poltergeist throw the crucifix and the Bible around the room, as well as smashing a few windows for good measure. What the fuck is going on? Next up was a Greek Orthodox priest who set up an altar on the kitchen table, blessed each room, and read out passages from a book in arcane language. 
can I, I oh, those conversations, you ring someone up, hello, this is the uh, priest from the Greek Orthodox Church. Hi, um, so <laughs> we have a ghost. We've got this ghost. We've got this ghost. Um, so during the reading, while he was reading from this book, uh, the priest was assaulted by a force which attempted to pull the book from his hand. The priest deemed that the poltergeist was too much for God to handle and the housemates were left alone in their haunted house. <laughs> After the failed exorcism, messages started to appear written in pebbles, in scrabble tiles, or in writing on the walls and floors. Words like fire, skin, car, help, and finally, Troy. It was a chilling moment. The housemates had a friend named Troy who was tragically killed when his ute crashed into a tree off the highway. Fucking hell, Troy! Leave them alone! The ute had tins of paint thinners in the back and the whole thing went up like a volcano, burning Troy to death. Troy had been best mates with Murph, one of the housemates, who was like a hard-nosed bikey type, not the kind to be easily spooked by a few pebbles. After the messages, a huge cross and a trident shape were drawn onto the floor in pebbles. Two people from outside the house actually witnessed the cross appearing. They said it was drawn in the hallway, which both they and the housemates had been walking up and down all night. They said that it appeared almost instantly, like they walked in the hallway, went into a room, walked back out, and the cross was there. Uh, they also said that the lines were perfectly straight, as though it had been made with a ruler. When Dave, one of the housemates, leant down and touched the cross, pebbles started flying everywhere. By this time, the media had picked up. If you fucking tell me that one of the housemates is like fucking with the other ones doing all of this. I already told you I was doing it. It was a poltergeist. (laughs) So by this time, the media had picked up the story. At first, just the local paper, but then Channel 7 and Today Tonight. For a week in early April, a Channel 7 crew set up shop in the house. When they arrived, the house was a mess. Glass windows on cabinets were held together with tape. Pages of the Bible were strewn around the place and the kitchen window was smashed. On the floor in the bathroom, Scrabble tiles spelled out, no TV. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is going on? <laughs> so I read the account from Max Anderson, who is a freelance reporter who was like, yo, get me in on this poltergeist shit. And Channel 7 was like, okay, boy, we got you. Um, and he stayed in the house while this is happening. Initially, Max was open-minded but skeptical. Jill, who was one of the housemates, um, when he arrived, told him that she thought the poltergeist was gone because a clairvoyant had phoned up from Brisbane that day and told them that she had taken care of it. Um, it's all right, guys. All the way down here in Brisbane, right. got rid of this like demonic this thing that's taking over your entire your house. fucking life. Right. So to Max, the residents of the house seemed tense and more than anything, just kind of over the whole poltergeist. They were just kind of like, oh, fine, come in, record our poltergeist. We don't care. It had been going on by months at this point. So by 4 p.m. on the first day, they had witnessed some paranormal activity. The mattress in Murph's bedroom flipped up of its own accord. A thermal camera was used to try and identify heat signatures that would show if a human being had recently touched something, but it didn't appear to find anything. Standing in the lounge after the incident, Max saw a AA battery fly from nowhere and hit a cabinet. Max observed many incidents over the week that messed with his brain. He heard scratching noises in the ceiling, saw pieces of glass being thrown around the room. Five cameras had been set up inside the house and they were constantly rolling. And when the cameras were set up, the action started happening outside the house. Stones flew from the driveway driveway towards the house while no one was outside. But the most damning moment for Max was one time he was walking with Kirsty inside the house. 
She was carrying baby Jasmine in her hands. No one else was in the house at the time, as the other housemates were all at work. They walked past Murph's bedroom. Max opened the door to look inside and saw that nothing was amiss. He then closed the door and heard a bang inside the room. He opened the door again and saw a piece of glass against the far wall that hadn't been there previously. Max knew that Kirsty couldn't have thrown it as he was standing right beside her. He had closed the door and she was holding her baby in one arm and a cigarette in the other. So the camera crew had gotten lots of footage of things flying across rooms, but nothing that showed like from start to finish that there was nothing like it would get it in motion or it get it falling to, to the floor or something like that. But nothing ever captured like the full like beginning to end of something being thrown. Um, so one of the planned stories about the house rolled out on TV and it was sensational news. Then the rest of the stories were canned when some footage that was taken showed a person in the reflection of a mirror after object was thrown. It appeared to be Kirsty, and all the TV people just decided that was a hoax and shut everything down, although to this day Max Anderson believes what he saw in the house. So once the TV crews has let TV crews had left, Paul Cropper and Tony Healy showed up. Paul and Tony were paranormal experts working on a series of stories about historical Australian poltergeists when the Humpty Doo story fell in their laps. Although the housemates were disillusioned by their treatment from the media, they allowed Paul and Tony into the house. The poltergeist activity hadn't ceased. Paul and Tony observed about 30 objects flying across the house over the course of about five days. Paul heard rattling sounds on the tin roof and about 13 stones fell onto the kitchen floor as though they had just sunk through the roof and the ceiling. A bullet dropped onto Paul's leg from the ceiling. Um, Another time, Paul and Tony were sitting on one side of the kitchen table. When the bullet was thrown, sorry, Paul and Tony were sitting on one side of the kitchen table and the housemates were sitting across from them, facing them when it happened. So nobody could have thrown it. What Paul and Tony and also Max Anderson said was that one or two incidents probably could have been easily faked, but there were so many times where the timing would have just been, had to have been absolutely perfect for anybody to get away with it. With over 30 witnesses and cameras rolling for five straight days, sure, nobody got definitive footage of a poltergeist, but nobody got definitive footage of a person throwing anything either. The poltergeist activity had been happening for weeks before the media got wind of it, and the housemates only received $5,000 from today to night, so they clearly weren't trying to get, they clearly weren't in it to try and get rich. All the housemates ended up moving out of the house in early May, and a number of theories have been given since then about the source of the Humpty Doo poltergeist. The former owner of the home, who was forced to sell it when this business failed, believed that the bad energy from being forced out of his home by the banks had infected the house. Some believe that it had something to do with Troy, the friend who had died in the car accident, but a ghost buster named Stephen Bishop, who was called in by Max Anderson, didn't believe that to be the case, saying that Tony had been a friend of the housemates, so there was no reason for him to engage in such nefarious activity, and also that the events had started to happen too soon after Tony had died for him to be the cause, and I'll be real with you, I don't understand why that matters, but he's the ghost buster, not me, so I'll trust him. There was also there was also a theory that was came from Andrew and Kirsty, who had apparently been told that um, Aboriginal sorcerers threw stones at their enemies, and Tony Healy was like, maybe you've been cursed by Aboriginals, and they were like, maybe we had, but also Andrew was a racist, and also there's no such thing as an Aboriginal sorcerer, so I feel like that's not that's, that's not, not valid. valid. We're not accepting. We're not that. accepting that. 
So the Humpty Doo poltergeist case remains unsolved. No one really truly knows whether it was a poltergeist or a man terrorising the residents at McMinn's Drive. But there are so many accounts of this poltergeist. There are so, There is just... It's just lousy with information. Every single person who ever sneezed near that house has their like version of the poltergeist story up online. So you can read all of these reports and see all these photos and video footage. Like they have so much information about it. Anyway, it was definitely a poltergeist. They were definitely haunted. That's the end. Did they burn the house? No, they down? just moved out. They didn't own it. It was a rental. They couldn't burn it down. What the fuck? Isn't that just the best story you've ever heard? <laughs> Everybody, like, everybody who was skeptical thought it was Kirsty. But Max Anderson was like, I had been with just Kirsty in the house and things had happened that she could not have been responsible for because I was standing with her. So, I don't know. I don't know why you'd do it for attention or anything like that. You know what I mean? Seems real. Like, there's 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 less crazy things to do for attention and Yeah, money. exactly. Exactly. Because they didn't even get any money. They didn't even get anything good. And it happened, like, it started happening in January and April was when the news crews came. So that's, like, months of, like, freaking all your friends out and getting priests It doesn't look like people have lived there. Well, no. The poltergeist lives there. Bullet from nowhere. Oh, my God. This is so fucking weird. It's real, guys. It's real. Go check it out. I can't believe in this shit because then I'll never sleep again. Yeah. But, you know. Excellent work. I know you live for this bullshit, so. It's so much fun. <laughs> it's so much fun. I love ghosts. Ghosts are real. I finished watching The Haunting of Hill House recently, as you know. Um, and my perspective. Ellen doesn't watch TV, so that's a big, like. It's massive. I. It's huge. I just decided to watch The Haunting of Hill House, and then I watched it in, like, a weekend. I never do that. She never does that. But it, it didn't scare me at all. It just made me be like, hey, man, ghosts. Like, they've got their reasons. <laughs> Ghosts. they got, they've their, got reasons. their reasons. Maybe that reason is because they were hanged for a crime they didn't commit. Maybe they just want to throw pebbles at some people. But ghosts, they got their reasons. Stunning work. See you well, all next Halloween. Well, yes. Or a couple of weeks after Halloween. <laughs> Depending well, on my it's Halloween. It's, it's Halloween year long inside our Oh, heart. it is. Great. Um, well, we'll... Uh, we'll be back in another fortnight yes, uh, for our last episode of our WA season uh, presented by Ellen Rose Sorensen. Um, if you have any cases that you would like us to cover in Northern Territory um, or if you have any cases that you'd like us to cover in ACT, please let us know. Um, if you would like to follow um, like follow us on Instagram, we're Murder in the Land of Oz, uh, on Facebook as well. Um, also, I think it's probably important for us to acknowledge uh, what has been going on in the Northern Territory at the moment uh, with another um, Indigenous person killed in uh, incarceration. Um, it's I posted about it on the Facebook. We've had like a sort of mixed response from people. There's still a bit of information that we don't have. Um, the man was uh, released, the man who um, shot the um, young man that was killed was arrested and then released on bail with pay, which I think is a little bit yuck. Um, but obviously, like, our stance on this podcast is that as a country in general, our history with um, treating the uh, First Nations people of this country is not good. Mm -hmm. um, and this is another instance in so many of 
um, indigenous, indigenous people being killed and uncut. Exactly. Yeah, in, indigenous deaths in custody. And um, obviously we stand with our Indigenous friends and, you know, feeling their pain and acknowledging that because it is very valid. Mm-hmm. Um, great. Thank you so much, Ellen, for your hard work. Uh, feel free to send us an email at murderinthelandofoz.gmail.com. You can become a Patreon, all that good stuff. Uh, we are so close to 10,000 subscribers, it's not even funny. And the rebranding of Mitlu is on its way. Yay, love Yay. a rebrand. Yay, stunning. Alrighty, rock on everybody. Bye. Have a good week. Have a good fortnight. Goodbye. Let's talk about X, baby. Ah, uh, crappy relationships, the bane of our collective existence. But what do we learn from our mistakes? I'm relationship columnist Liz Bess. And I'm funny guy Tom Harris. Ghosts of Boyfriends Past will chat to guests about love gone wrong and take you on a journey through the funny, tragic, horrifying... And sometimes just plain bonkers stories about that crazy little thing called love. It's like a group therapy session. With two people completely unqualified to be leading it. New episodes drop fortnightly on Thursday, so join in to hear tales of heartbreak and woe and hopefully wind up a little wiser or drunker for it. That's Not Canon Productions podcast. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.